Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today we begin week three of our current series on Philippians, the Fellowship of the Gospel with Dr. John Newfeld. In this message, we'll look in depth at one of the most well-known verses from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. So let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. It wasn't that long ago when some Christians used to wear bracelets around their wrists with the letters WWJD. Those letters stood for, What Would Jesus Do? It was supposed to be a reminder that in making decisions or choosing an action, they were to first ask, What would Jesus do? And then having considered what Jesus would do, they were encouraged to imitate Him. This, we were taught, is the beginning of discipleship or following after Jesus, letting Him instruct us how to live. I could say much to commend this. Who would criticize people who want to be like Christ? But there were some problems that soon became apparent. People weren't always sure of what Jesus would do. Would Jesus buy a Toyota Prius because it was a green car? Well, whatever you answer, you're just speculating, and that was the problem. People began speculating about all sorts of things, including the size of the house that Jesus would buy or or whether he would be on a church board that decided to expand the size of the sanctuary for $10 million or, or whether he would take a winter vacation to someplace warm and sunny. And soon the saying, what would Jesus do, became meaningless. It became more about what do I think that my idea of Jesus actually is and then what would my idea of Jesus do? And that's not very helpful. Furthermore, even when we know with biblical certainty what Jesus would do in a given situation, that might not be enough. I mean, Jesus wouldn't get angry at someone cutting into traffic ahead of him and fume about it, but you might. Jesus wouldn't lust after a woman, but you might. Jesus wouldn't harbor anger in his heart, but you might. And the reason for the difference between you and him is not a matter of decision-making or choosing the right action. It's more about an internal condition of the heart. Jesus was internally at peace, and so often we're not. So simply asking what Jesus would do seems so superficial. The real question for disciples might be different than a simple, what would Jesus do? So the WWJD movement kind of died out. Not so much because the idea is bad in and of itself, but because the idea wasn't well thought through enough and it often wasn't enough. Much more needed to be said. So in our study of Philippians, we've come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And as we're going to see, the idea of imitating Christ is front and center to what we're going to study. But it comes with a different twist. Not the letters WWJD, but the letters WDJT. That is, what did Jesus think? And as we're going to see, we're not encouraged to speculate as to whether Jesus would eat a salad or a Big Mac for lunch, but to learn Christ's mindset and then learn to think in the same way that he did. But because this passage demands so much more than one reading, I've decided to divide it into two. The first section is about the humility of Christ, and the second about his exaltation. Also, in here we might be speculating a bit, but there are many Bible teachers who believe that Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, might have been an ancient Christian hymn that the churches had been taught to sing together. Now, if that's so, it might also be then that Paul himself had written this hymn. And if that's the case, we can't be sure about it, but, but if it is 
then it would seem that one of the ways in which the early church learned their doctrines and faithfulness to Christ is that they learned them by singing them. But and, and this is what makes this reading so fascinating. Paul takes the doctrine of Christ, his eternal existence, his incarnation, his humiliation, and his death on the cross, followed by his resurrection and glorification, and then applies that doctrine to the lives of God's people. You see, doctrine is good, but application of doctrine, huh, that's excellent. Now, I've said enough about introducing this passage. Let's read the entire text. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's pretty easy to see, simply reading this text, that this is one of the passages of Scripture that gives us our Christology, or our doctrine of Christ. Who is Jesus? The passage tells us. It explains his deity, his incarnation, his sacrificial death, and his exaltation. In many ways, this text should be studied just to give us a picture of who the real Jesus is. Study this passage well, and you'll be spared the errors of those who say that Jesus is a created being, or the errors of those who imagine that there is no distinction between the Father and the Son, or those who argue that Jesus wasn't fully human, or so forth. There is an instance in the early ministry of Jesus that tells us how important the identity of Jesus would become for the early church. Matthew records this incident in Matthew 8, 23-27. Jesus had been teaching all day, and he was exhausted. He got into a boat, and he and his disciples had determined that they would cross the Sea of Galilee. Jesus immediately fell asleep. He was fatigued from the demands of preaching and ministering to people. And a storm whipped up, and the boat was being swamped, but Jesus did not wake up. He was far too drained from his ministry, and he just slept almost as if he was comatose. So was his weariness. And finally, in desperation, the disciples managed to rouse him. You know, we're about to drown, they shouted amidst the howling storm and the waves broaching the ship. And Jesus looks around and he gets his bearing and he's rubbing the sleep from his eyes and he steadies himself and then he speaks to the weather. He rebukes it and instantly, at the sound of his voice, all nature obeys. Not only did the wind stop blowing instantly, but the waves instantly became calm. And the disciples tried to put this together. On the one hand, he was just like any man. When he worked too hard, he was overtired. On the other hand, this ordinary man could speak to nature, and all nature obeyed his voice. And then Matthew 8, 27 records the disciples as saying, What sort of man is this? Indeed, that was the question. And the entire church of Jesus wrestled with this question for 300 years. Indeed, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, Paul warns against someone coming and preaching what he calls another Jesus. That is, he warns the church against someone who would misrepresent the true identity of Jesus and then present a misguided view of Jesus and pass it off as the real thing. 
kind of like a counterfeit $20 bill. It is passed off pretending to be the real thing, but it really is a fraud or a fake. So this passage in Philippians is Christology. That is, it's a passage that is intended to teach us the true identity or the true nature of Jesus. But as we have noted, Paul uses the doctrine of the true identity of Jesus, and then he makes an application to us. See, we've noted that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians so that they would learn one central thing. He wanted their manner of life to be worthy of the gospel. And that brings me back to the key statement I made at the beginning of this address. What did Jesus think? Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let me translate it literally from the Greek. This mind, or this mindset in you, which also in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? Let's begin with the first two words in the Greek. This mind, or this mindset. So which mindset? The answer is found in verse 2. It says, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. The mind or the mindset that Paul spoke of back in verse 2 had to do with a way of thinking that led to a unity among God's people. It had to be with having a passion for the same thing, that is, a passion for spreading the gospel. And in order to effectively spread the gospel over an extended period of time meant that one had to avoid rivalry or conceit. You had to look out for the interests of others before looking out for one's own interest. And that's the mindset that Paul speaks about. And Paul thinks that Jesus had that mindset. So when he says, this mind in you, which also in Christ Jesus, he means have the same mindset that Jesus had. Learn to think the same way that Jesus did. Look at the world the way that Jesus did. React to situations around you from the same perspective that Jesus had. Now, in order to learn to think the way Jesus did, you have to understand who Jesus truly is. Unless you grasp who he is, you'll never grasp how he thought. And so in order to teach God's people to act worthy of the gospel and to focus on the advancement of the gospel while avoiding all the rivalry and conceit that attends such an enterprise, the Philippian believers would need to get a deep perspective into the mind of Christ. And what they would find is that Jesus' mindset is one of deep, abiding, lasting, and enduring humility. How humble was Jesus? Well, we'll find out when we come back. As we begin to unpack these verses, we're reminded of the importance of understanding who Jesus really is. We must have a right foundation for our doctrine of Christology if we're going to live godly lives that honor Him. And a vital part of knowing Him deeply is to think like Him. But how in our sinfulness is this even possible? Well, after the break, we'll explore more of the humility of Jesus and how that transforms the way we live and how we interact with others. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. If there was ever a time for the ministry, it's now. If there was ever a time to hear about the hope and joy that comes from knowing Jesus, it's now. And now you can enjoy Laugh Again and Phil in a way never experienced before. 
So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube. A new, inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. Let's remember what Philippians is all about. It is a book which celebrates a unique partnership in the gospel that existed between the Philippian church and the apostle Paul. Together, they were advancing the gospel. Together, they were doing evangelism and building the church of Jesus Christ so that the gospel was now penetrating into the heart of the Roman Empire. And along the way, they recognized the threats to their partnership. The first threat was persecution. Both Paul and the church in Philippi needed to transcend intimidation and aggressive Roman attitudes. They needed to believe that death was better than life. The second threat was disunity among themselves, allowing subtle attitudes of rivalry and suspicion to tear them apart. And the way to win the second battle is to gain the mindset of Jesus. What did Jesus think? Let's reread the first part of verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God. See, we need to stop here and reflect. First of all, Christ has always existed in the form of God. Second, he has never stopped existing in the form of God. So what does Paul mean by the word form? The word means the inner essential and abiding nature of something. So Paul is saying Jesus has always been God by nature. Whatever is essential to being God, essential to his genuine form, or essential to his nature is essential to Jesus. This does not refer to his external appearance, but to his essential being. The New Testament speaks this way in several other passages. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Consider the word radiance. If I look at the moon, it's not the radiance of light. It is the reflection of light. The actual radiance of light comes from the sun, the source of light. See, Jesus is not the reflection of the glory of God. He is the very radiance itself. He shines forth his own essential glory. Now, that's how the Bible speaks about God. So Isaiah 46 verse 9, for instance, says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. See, the God of the Bible claims to be the only one. There are no competitors. And yet Jesus, who prayed to the Father, said he submitted to the Father, and he would also say, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was, meaning I existed before Abraham, but rather before Abraham was, I am, using the title reserved for God alone. I am means I always exist of necessity. And that's how the apostles spoke of Jesus as well. Second Peter 1 verse 1 begins this way. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus is not just called our Savior. 
Peter calls him our God and Savior. See, I wish I had time to unpack the mystery of the Trinity here, but we don't have time. But we can say that there are three things taught about God in the Bible. One, God exists as three persons. Secondly, each person is fully God. And thirdly, the three persons are the one God. In other words, there is only one God. See, Paul begins with this assumption. Jesus in the form of God. All things that are essential of God are true of Jesus. Without understanding that basic point, nothing in the mindset of Jesus makes any sense at all. Now let's move beyond that. Again in verse 6 who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word for grasped here is fascinating. The word can be used to describe the seizing of treasure. Like, for instance, a thief or maybe even a pirate might seize a treasure and make it his own. He pounces upon riches, seizes it, and lives off the treasure that his hands have grasped. But of course, Jesus did not have to steal a treasure. That treasure was already his by nature. Another way of understanding this word grasped is as a gain to be utilized for his own advantage. Kind of like a king who uses his privilege and his power, his military, his wealth, his reputation, his throne to gain advantage for himself. And of course, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The Son although fully equal to the Father, submits to the Father. Consider Jesus' own words in this matter, and I'm quoting from John 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And that's part of the mystery of the Trinity. It teaches us that the submission of Jesus to his Father is not a sign of inferiority. Submission never is. The Son never led. The Father did. The Son obeyed, never grasping his deity to his advantage, but rather submitted. Now to the beginning of verse 7. But made himself nothing. The word nothing is literally but emptied himself. You know, some liberal theologians have said that when Jesus became a man, he emptied himself of being God. But that's not what's taught here. Jesus has eternally been God. God never ceases to be God. He is God eternally, and so is Jesus. But the point here is not that he emptied himself of anything, for he didn't. Rather, the phrase, he emptied himself, means He humbled himself, or may I put it even more strikingly, he humiliated himself. But then Paul is still not done. In the last part of verse 7, he says, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Notice the word form again. Jesus is eternally in the form of God, and this one, eternal God, has taken the form, the essential nature of, not just a servant, but quite literally, a slave. Do you remember Jesus in the upper room with his disciples? They all sat down to eat, and Jesus, taking the role of a slave, stoops down and washes his disciples' feet. Only the most menial slave, the slave that was at the bottom of the totem pole, would be forced to do that, but he did it willingly. But Paul is still not done. In verse 8, he says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So this picture must have had considerable impact in the mindset of the Philippian believers because as citizens of Philippi, they were Roman citizens as well. And as Roman citizens, they were exempt from crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for not just slaves, but for criminals of the lowest order. It was not just that crucifixion was cruel and extremely painful. It was degrading. It was meant to strip you of your humanity and present you as a curse, a horror, an object of revulsion. That is humiliation which exceeds everything. Most of us know the name Lance Armstrong, the U.S. cyclist. He's truly one of the amazing athletes of our time. He won the Tour de France seven consecutive times, and he did this in spite of the fact that he had been diagnosed with testicular cancer that had spread to his lungs and his brain. Here's the story of a heroic fight against cancer, followed by his return to the racing scene. He became everybody's hero, even founding a charity called Live Strong. But then the unthinkable happened. He was found guilty of illegal doping and was stripped of his Tour de France titles, and then the charity he formed even removed his name. From hero to villain, from greatest athlete ever to a cheat and a fraud, he became humiliated before the watching world. We all know of people who have been humiliated, but this one, Jesus, he chose it willingly. Indeed, from the heights of glory that none of us can imagine to frightful ignominy, frightful disgrace, in which he was marred beyond all recognition, this was Jesus, and this is what it took to buy our salvation. And in this, Jesus, fully equal to the Father, submitted to the Father's plan for our salvation. And that's how Jesus thought. He thought obedience to the Father was far more precious than the status or the title that was rightly due him. He deeply embraced a loving obedience that knew no boundary line. The smile of his Father was worth more than status. And, says Paul, when believers learn to think like Jesus, they will never allow rivalry or conceit nor envy of each other to divide them. And until we learn the attitude of Jesus, we will never succeed. humility of Jesus. What a great personal challenge, and it begins with an understanding of his mindset. What did Jesus think? We get a much clearer understanding of Jesus' humility when we get a sense of his divine nature that radiates the very essence of God. Jesus chose to lay aside everything for one singular purpose, a radical obedience to the Father. I hope that this message has encouraged and inspired you as we strive to apply the example of Jesus in our own lives. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld returns to teach us about the exaltation of Jesus, next in our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I hope you've enjoyed today's Back to the Bible Canada message with Dr. John. If you have, I want to encourage you to check out a new weekly video Bible teaching program featuring Dr. John that can be viewed on backtothebible.ca or by visiting the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And if you want to receive notice each week of a new episode and receive the accompanying study guide, you can sign up online. The first series presented and can be viewed in its entirety is Hope in Dark Times. And Dr. John's second and new series based on Revelation chapter 1 to 7 is entitled To the One Who Conquers and Has Already Begun. So check it out now at backtothebible.ca or on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. 
For more information or to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca.